Pow! Spun Counter Guy, thanks for coming by. A few weekends ago, I had a chance to attend the annual convention of the International Association of Jazz Record Collectors in Indianapolis, Indiana. It's a small but intense gathering in that everyone there is a walking encyclopedia on the world of jazz music, particularly of the early 20th century. As a podcaster, it was like being a crackhead in a crack store where there were almost too many potential wonderful guests for the show. I tried to stay my ambition and so only recorded a handful of folks of which I'll space out over the next few months. The first of the voices I talked with was a retired formulation researcher for pharmaceuticals and, of course, an avid jazz lover and collector. Can you identify yourself? Well, I'm Randy Staley from Kalamazoo, Michigan, and I've been a record collector for probably 50 years. Okay. You said when you were five years old you started? When I was five, that was when my parents bought a second-hand K-Parts from somebody they knew in a ritzier part of the state and they came with a bunch of classical album sets and so I grew up liking classical music. I really didn't get into this jazz until I was in college. You know, I, I didn't know this stuff still existed on 78s and then I met a guy that come to Michigan from Kentucky and was going to college in Michigan and lived nearby and he was a hillbilly collector. Really? But he gave me a handful of jazz 78s to start, like Gene Goldcat, Paul Whiteman, stuff like that. And I went from there. So it's been almost 50 years now. And so he was your catalyst into jazz? He just pretty get- much, pretty much. Yeah, I had LPs of this old stuff as well as reissues of this old stuff, but it never occurred to me that there were 78s around that were original. Mm. And in those days, People that reissued this stuff on LPs didn't know quite what they were doing with 78s. They'd filter them to death, but the basic equalization and stuff like that was off, and so the records sometimes sounded like the band was playing down the block under a blanket. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, let's talk about the technology then, because uh, now a lot of the reissues are fantastic. Oh, yes, we've got people that know what they're doing now. And I have heard uh, from the experts that they're actually playing these records correctly for the first time ever because yeah. even the people who record them never heard them as well as other than the day yeah. they played them. Well, I worked for many years with a, another guy from Kalamazoo at the Upjohn Company, and he was a librarian, and he had he did a lot of research into this stuff. Being a librarian, he could go online and access these obscure audio journals from the 20s and 30s to find out what the record companies were doing, and he decided to join up with me because he was a classical collector so he only had two or three different labels in his collection where I had about 400 and so for every every Tuesday for 10 years he came over and we went from one label to the next and wrote down proper settings for playback you got the turnover that handles the bass end of things and the roll off which handles the treble end of things so you're basically creating a playback curve that's the opposite of the recording curve so it comes out relatively flat and natural and that book's still in print okay you know that sold through Kurt Nelk in Texas so if a young person is wanting to collect 78s and hear them at the best is there a turntable you could recommend yeah 
are a number of turntables. You've got to be prepared to spend a little money. I think about the the cheapest you can get is somewhere between two and three hundred, and that'll come with a pickup and a couple of you know reasonable styluses. So right now you're wearing a shirt with uh, Betty Boop yes. uh, on a Victor label, which yep. I didn't realize existed. I thought it was a joke. It was a regular catalog item, Victor 24261, that was recorded in March of 1933. And it's Mae Questel, one of the original Betty Boop gals, singing a couple of songs with the Victor Orchestra. You can feed me bread and water for a great big a regular catalog item it came with this special white label and for, for some reason it's extremely scarce today I don't know why is it because anybody that has a nice copy holds on to it one of my sisters-in-law told me well you know it might have been marketed families with kids, and the kids broke them all. Uh, that's exactly what I was thinking. They, they played frisbee in the backyard with it. Yeah. And, and, and this same sister-in-law, she happens to be a Betty Boop fan, and she just flipped out when I played this record for her. <laughs> Let's go to the history of Betty Boop, because that's I, I think it's worth looking at. Yes. First of all, uh, her character was based off Helen Kane. Yes. Right. Who made a lot of rec records for Victor in the 1920s with that characteristic Boop boopy doop yeah. voice. Button up your overcoat when the wind is free. Take good care of yourself. You belong to me. You run into voices like that in actresses. In if if you see some of these old movies on uh, Turner Classic Movies, if you're lucky enough to catch something from the late twenties and and. That seemed to be the fashion for cutesy ladies back yeah. then. Yeah, with, with baby voices. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, it might be some kind of fetish, possibly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> with a giant head. <laughs> you gave me such a thrill. In fact, you thrill me still. In fact, you thrill me more each day, and you always will. Still, you wanted to be free. Baby, you would be. I always feel like the cartoons that they made, or especially for jazz music, were just priceless because they incorporated uh, classic guys like oh, Cab, Cab Calloway and Louis Armstrong. In the soundtrack on one, the introduction is by the Missourians, a real hot recording by Missourians, which had appeared on Victor, probably the 200th version of Tiger Rag that the Missourians recorded. <laughs> they, they, they recorded, I don't know how many tunes under different titles, but they were all Tiger Rag, forms of Tiger <laughs> Rag. And I think that was, it was the Missourians basically were incorporated into what became the Cab Calloway band. But those early Betty Boop cartoons are just priceless because some of those will, will have six and seven different contemporary tunes right. in there. And it's, it's fascinating for us collectors to sit there and watch and see if we can identify all these tunes. Right. <laughs> I know they've made animated versions of Minnie the Moocher. Yes. Uh, St. James Infirmary Blues. The Old Man of the Mountain. You got to hold the ho. You got to hold the ho. You got to hide the hide. 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 You got to h
got the heat, the heat to get along with me. But I will say this, some of those cartoons, they almost seem like a bad drug trip at times. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> some, of, some of those horror figures that you see in these dark cave scenes and yes. so on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the old man of the mountain. That was a fad for a while. Each record label seemed to have, somewhere along the line, a woman singer who would imitates the original. Mm -hmm. uh, there's four sides on, on uh, Columbia Vivatonal from the late 20s by, it just says, The Mystery Girl. Now I don't like babies, I can't stand babies, they make me nervous, it's true. But if you say baby, ta-da-tot, maybe I'll do anything for you. And then Annette Hanshaw, who was a really popular singer at the time and, and recorded with a lot of great jazz backing, she made a lot of Betty Boop-like records, but usually under a pseudonym like Dot Dare and Gay Ellis and maybe one or two others. Yeah. You know, and they're just wonderful to find. A man showed me a lavalier. He said it's yours if you'll kiss me, dear. Oh, tell me. Was there anything wrong in that, huh? Another thing about the cartoon I remember is they're pre-code, and so they're a little bit more racier, sex yes, sexier. Yes. You know, maybe it was a, a change in the times, but, you know, all of a sudden Betty Boop's skirt got longer and yeah. you didn't see so much bust and, yeah. and so on. It's a riot. Yesterday you were wearing a shirt with a Janet label. Yes. Yeah. Now, I think most people know about that label. It was out of Indiana. Yes, right. Richmond, Indiana. And the one you were wearing, it said it was a Zulu's ball? Yes. Yeah. That is a one-of-a-kind recording by King Oliver's Creole Jazz Band. They, they made several few months earlier for the Jeanette label, and they're all kind of scarce and valuable, but they do turn up. They made a second batch about 100 catalog numbers later, 5274, 5275, 5276. 5274 is a lot harder to find than the, the 5100s that came out earlier. Uh, 5275, that's the one that I was on the shirt. There's only one known copy of that, and that turned up in 1944. Uh, and no other copies have turned up since. Wow. And every time it changes hands, mm -hmm. the price goes up. I think the last time it went for $50,000. So this one record has been floating around yes, all yes. this time. And it's been, you know, it's gone down in several grades of condition being played on oh, no. all sorts of equipment since then. Right. But, you know, the reissuers discovered the virtue of using different size and shapes of styluses. So they've been able to cobble together and actually relatively clean transfer okay. of that recording on the Archeophone CD label. Uh, 5276 
that was proposed for release, but no copy of it is ever turned up. And so the suspicion was it never was released. And there's various reasons they've proposed why these two or three later genets are scarce. And the problem is the band made some records for the OK label. And so they suspect that the Jeanette people were a little teed off about this. And so they just yanked whatever oh. had been issued oh, shortly no. after released. Oh, it's, it's tragic. <laughs> So, I assume you're not the one guy who has this record. Oh, no, no. Uh, it's <laughs> changed hands. It came from Europe, and it's, it's changed hands several times in the U.S. I've actually held the record. Really? Looked at it. Yeah, a number of years ago at the East Coast Bash in June in, in New Jersey, uh, Russ Shore, the VJM guy, he co-owned that record with, I think, Joe Laurel, I'm not sure. And, they, you know, they played it and showed, passed it around so we could all say we'd Golly, seen and touched a $50,000 78. Golly, I, I don't know if I could hold him up uh, being shaky. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, well, you know, when you're, you're a jaded collector, you don't think about those right. things. <laughs> Let me asking what are some of the personal treasures that you have like that maybe people are after or that are for pretty rare well I you know since I've met Linda Ermisher who's a you know descendant of the Jeanette family I've become very intrigued by the Jeanette family of labels and of course the sales figures for a lot of those things are available and I have an article that's coming out in the December ah, two months late already issue of the International Association of Jazz Record Collectors Journal on sales figures for the champion label the intriguing thing about those of course is you had your flagship label Jeanette Electra Bean and then you had champion and superior and uh, uh, Supertone and a bunch of other labels that sold for a lot cheaper mm. but the same recorded material appeared in various combinations on the full price label and all these budget labels mm. but the budget labels at least until 1930 always were issued under pseudonyms okay. so a person could buy the same record three or four times and, and, no, no, and no. not know it until he compared them because the full price was 75 cents Champion records were 35 cents or three for a dollar, and then you finally got down to Supertone, which was they pressed for Sears, the Roebuck Company, and those were probably you know maybe a quarter or something. I don't know. It was the quality of the shellac. Did it go down with which each level? They say that sometimes, but I don't know. I've got beautiful pressings on all labels. You know, some of my prize champions, which some of those only sold two or three figures. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you get a nice, unworn copy, it's a joy forever, let me tell sure. you. I mean, because the only, you've got your equipment and the record. There's nothing or nobody between, excuse me, the, the record and you. Right. On the Jeanette label, who are some of your favorite artists and recordings? Uh, Al Trent, that was a Southwestern jazz orchestra. Oh, <laughs> 
another wonderful label is OK. And collectors treasure those because they were laminated. Uh, like the Vivatonal Columbia's from the 20s, you had a hard, brittle core and then a, a thin layer of paper on both sides, and then you had a, a thin layer of incredibly smooth material on the playing surfaces of the record, which contained a higher proportion of shellac than the core did. And as a result, an unworn OK or Columbia from the 20s, it's, it's like a master tape. It sounds so beautiful. Okay, I gotta ask you uh, maybe an embarrassing question. We're at the jazz convention, and every evening, you know, people bring out their best seventy-eights. Or, and what's one you would never play here, but you at home you secretly listen to? I don't know that I can think of anything <laughs> like that. I mean, if I get something incredibly rare, the the, the tendency is to show off, uh -huh. or at least want to share it with your your, right. your friends. Oh yeah. We get into eBay. Between Christmas and New Year's, about five years ago, up popped a listing for a near mint OK by the Birmingham Jug Band. Down in Alabama, we will have to trial, oh, do them that don't fail no lie. Come here, big boy, let's start it again. You had no business getting that white man here. These records are just incredible because the kind of people that bought them played them to death and they never turn up in good condition. This was on eBay from a seller in Bennington, Vermont of all places. And it, it said, you know, the minimum bid was $295 and the buy it now price was $325. And I stared at that thing for five minutes not believing it was real and I said, I gotta go for this. That is a, I've had that record appraised and it's anywhere from three to six thousand wow. dollars. Yeah. Good on you. It's just, it's, it was basically brand new. And a friend of mine from Canada actually sent me a transcript because you can barely understand what they're singing. It's mm. kind of like rap today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but, and, and there's a rough, transcript of what's on the record so at least you got a guide to follow through while you're listening uh -huh. but that would probably be one of the rarest records I've ever had I know this is an impossible question, but what's your favorite recording? Oh, Lord. I think back in the 70s, the Kalamazoo Gazette had one of those uh -huh. where they contacted me and asked me to list 10 of my favorite records. It, it's a moving thing, you know. You get something, oh boy, I guess I like this one even better. Uh -huh. But there, there's actually hundreds of favorites, and it's really hard to pick a favorite. It's just amazing, though some of the quality of recordings of, that they made back in the 20s, you know, because they, in a sense, they didn't know what they were doing. I mean, it was just take a chance with these settings and we'll see how it works out. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is there any, I ask this of everybody, was there ever an artist that you felt never got their due that you kind of championed? Oh, boy. Because we all know the big ones, of course, like Louis Armstrong, Dick yeah, Ellington, yeah. all those guys. There are some obscure bands that made only one or two sides, and 
not very good with names. I can't think of something right mm -hmm. now, but I do. There are several bands that, you know, it was like one of a kind, a two-sided wonder, and that's it. You never heard from them again. And you'll, you'll read in various books and publications that it's really too bad they didn't make more records. <laughs> Have you got to meet any of your heroes? No, I guess I just came along too late in the game. I didn't have money back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, the only, I met Joe Venuti once up at, in Toronto. I was up there on business for Upjohn and we were walking down Young Street and the guy I was with said, oh, we got to find a topless bottomless place. You know, it was, that was a fad in the 70s. Uh -huh. You had to go to a topless bottomless bar to see the gals dancing. Uh -huh. And we walk past this bar, it's September, so it's still warm, and there's this vintage music coming out, and I had only been collecting for two years at this time, and I thought, wow, that sounds awful familiar. And I peeked in, and here was this roughly 80-year-old guy playing the violin, playing all four strings at once with the bow woven so that you played all four strings at once, and, and there was a quartet with him. one of the things I remember. We ended up staying there, but this guy never let me forget that we missed the, the topless bottomless bar because we had to see Joe Venuti. <laughs> And then the only other guy that I'd met was Thomas Tick Gray, who made a handful of recordings with King Oliver on Brunswick slash Vocalion in uh -huh. about 1927. He ended up being a a high school band instructor in, in uh, Three Rivers, Michigan. I ran into him in a town called Jones. It was like a downtown that was bypassed by the highway in the 30s or 40s, and it was just left intact. And some guy bought it, and they converted it temporarily into an old-time town with mechanical music instruments and this and that. And I got to talking with this black couple in one of the buildings, and. And I remember his wife said, oh yeah, we got some of them records, records around the house. You know, and he gave me his card, which I still have around someplace. But those are the only two real musicians I ever met. My stepsister, who who was in high school in Ann Arbor two years behind me, she actually got to interview Louis Armstrong. I am just great with him. Wow. <laughs> How did she wing that? I don't know, but she was worked for the high school newspaper. Wow. And apparently Louis Armstrong made an appearance in Ann Arbor at a concert or something, and she got to interview the guy. My goodness. I'm just so jealous. Wow. I probably would have said something stupid. Yeah, know, he gets so know. nervous. Like, you know, well, you know, like, you don't just meet a black person and call them by their first name. Oh, uh, yeah. 
which I did once and I, when I met Ubi Blake up in, in Canada, because he used to come to the Ragtime Festival up there. That guy played hot piano well into his 90s. He was just an incredible individual. Asked Mr. Staley about what were some of his more spicier discoveries. Okay, in the 70s, an LP label came out with a reissue of Party Blues or Risque Blues, and the title track was Mama Please Warm My Wiener. <laughs> Don't get mad this time. If you want my wiener, you'll get me eased all up in my mind. Baby, please warm my wiener. But the, the cover art is this uh, crumb guy, yeah. and so I kind of treasured, I got the, a copy of the original Bluebird as a bonus in a trade several years ago, something I thought I'd never have, but it's just one of those things uh -huh. that's neat to have, uh -huh. and lo and behold a copy of the record showed up on, it's Joel Slotnikoff, I think he's from St. Louis. The same record on Bluebirds with a minimum bid of a thousand dollars. You know, it's just his lists are just too much to take. But does he ever get that money? I don't know, uh -huh. but I mean the blues he's got on there. I mean he's had records into five figures on his list. Uh -huh. It's just like uh -huh. Nelk from Texas. Uh -huh. He had a copy of uh, it was uh, Robert Johnson, uh -huh. a nice shape, a vocalion. E condition, I think it was. Minimum bid was thirty thousand. Good night. And I, and the bids went up higher than that, and it still didn't meet the reserve. I mean, wow. that's why I say I'm glad I don't collect blues. Some of them I like listening to, like Blind Blake's guitar work is just out of this world. In fact, somebody played one here last night. Let's go back. And I was lucky enough, a friend of mine was in Chicago at a film collector's convention, and it just happened in the same hotel. There was a record collector's show mm -hmm. right across the hall, and there was a card table with two black fellows right outside the door. Mm -hmm. And there was a stack of what they call race, okays and vocalions and so on. And my friend who was a record collector and had dealt with me for a number of years, he took one look and his eyes popped out and he said, <laughs> I went back into the film show and I sold films like there was no tomorrow because I was going to buy those records. And one of them was a Paramount by Blind Arthur, which Arthur was... Uh, Blind Blake's first name, and it's two ragtime guitar-like solos. One of my, another one of my favorite records, and it actually, that actually, both sides actually went into that second Paramount box that was just issued by Third Man Records.
it's nice. Eight of my sides ended up in that box set. Wow, that's great. That reminds me, obviously collectors can have a, a mean streak if they're really after something. Have you ever seen it where it just got nasty in the bidding wars and all that? Yeah, I mean, you see that on eBay where a relatively common record gets caught between two bidders and it gets bid up to way beyond what it's worth. You know, but it can be a good thing because I have a local friend who he hasn't had much luck lately, but over the years he got some really good stuff. And he put this, it was a gospel record on uh, Silvertone label. That's another label sold by Sears. And a rabbit foot somebody or other, I can't remember, but it was a gospel record. And it, you know, he figured he'd get about a thousand for it. Well, two guys, including, and I think one was Tefteller, got in a bidding war over it and ended up going for, I think, 2200 bucks. Whoa. So it made my friend really happy. happy. Yeah. <laughs> have you been at conventions and seen that look when someone sees something they just got to have or they've been looking for for years? Yeah, I mean, I've been guilty of that myself. Oh, well, yeah. I'm better now that I'm a seasoned collector, but when I was young, I, you know, you almost shake when you saw yeah. something really good. I was, I was at one of these fairground antique shows. It was one of the biggest in Michigan, like 600 dealers. Mm -hmm. Nothing. I get to the very last booth, and it was just a bunch of stuff on a blanket on the ground. And there were two, two of these, uh, you know, 78 record books, each holding 10 records. Uh -huh. And I open it up, and the first record is a scroll Victor by Sleepy John Estes on the 30, Victor 38 500 label my eyes just popped out and the guy looked at me and he says that's a real goodie and I, all I could say was you just don't run into things like that. I ended up trading it away because what I did was every time I got a good country blues record I would trade with the Gail Wardlow, who's a famous Paramount blues collector from down south, for piano records on Paramount. So I've got some really nice piano records by people like Will Ezell on Paramount in really nice condition because they were they're survivors of new old store stock. That's great. <laughs> That's all for now. Like I said before, I'll release some more interviews from the convention over the next few months. And I might also recommend you checking out In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, number 56, The Jazz Man. If you're interested in joining the IAJRC, you can find them at iajrc.org. If you join up, you'll get their sweet quarterly publication that's somewhere between a magazine and a book, chock full of unique articles, photos, history, and info on how to find that elusive record you've been turning over the world to find. In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile podcast is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at spuncounterguy. And if you'd like to see a list of former episodes of In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, go to spuncounterguy.com and click on the pictures of piles of wood with chairs in front. Be sure to download the new Podbean app to hear this podcast and others on your tablet and smartphone. And we are now on iTunes. Just do a search for Back by the Woodpile on the iTunes store and we should pop up. And a special thanks to thebrofisticate.com. Mm -hmm.
Bye-bye.